She is studying right now at Yale and has been studying history, uh, English and religion and has been participating in Jewish Christian Bible study there and Christian leadership and all sorts of things. And so we've invited her to come and preach as she has done before. This is not her first rodeo at Spark and she'll be back here again um, on all of her breaks until we can raise enough fun to just make her work here when she graduates. Yeah. So amen. Uh huh. Just start the GoFundMe page now. <laughs> All right. So, Lauren, we're so glad you're here. Let me pray for you and you'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for my sister and for her passion for you, Jesus, for her passion to see justice come in this world um, in your name, for your kingdom to be built here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would continue to lead and guide her, that you would anoint her words, and that all of us in this room, our hearts would be opened and our eyes would be ready to see, ears ready to hear what it is you would teach us today um, in this community and what the word would be for us moving forward. We bless you, Lord, for all of these good things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome again to Spark Church and to the Jesus Economics series. Um, As Danielle said, I'm really excited to be sharing today. Uh, In fact, in July 2014, almost exactly five years ago, I walked into Spark Church for the very first time um, and heard her preach on the parable of the workers in the vineyard, which is what I'll be sharing about today. Um, and at the time, I didn't have a church home and I felt pretty unmoored. Uh, but once I heard that teaching here at Spark, I kept coming back and the rest is history. So this parable has a pretty special place in my heart. Um, I'll open us up in a little bit more prayer. Father God, thank you so much for gathering us here today in this place to learn more about you and your word. Help us discern what your compassion and your justice look like in our economic frameworks today. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're in the third week of a series entitled Jesus Economics, and in this series we're considering the importance of thinking economically with regards to biblical justice as followers of Jesus. And we want to wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus in the Silicon Valley uh, with one of the highest concentrations of wealth and also one of the largest economic disparities in the country. And one of the main themes from the last two weeks is that the movement of Jesus is not so heavenly minded that it is no earthly good and that the ways and teachings of Jesus may have a lot to do with, with where we are here and now. Another important point that I should reiterate is that this series is not about prescribing exactly what this looks like, um, nor is it about diving into economic theories of capitalism versus socialism or 2020 election economic policies. Um, We're not going to debate whether Jesus was for small government um, or what he would do with the national economy, as this uh, NPR article would suggest. Um, Actually, fun fact, the parable of the workers in the vineyard is used in this article as evidence against unionization. So we're not doing that. Um, But two weeks ago, Pastor Kevin kicked us off by introducing the idea of of justice having economic implications in the way of Jesus and that a consuming way of living is reductive while a generous way of living can be regenerative. Um, And last week, we heard about Jesus' teaching to have a good eye, which is an expression that means to be generous in Jesus' time and even today in Hebrew, um, and the value that Jesus places on seeing our brothers and sisters rightly. This week, uh, we're taking a look at one of Jesus' parables and discussing how his grace, generosity, and justice converge in a way that's surprising and even infuriating at first glance, and how we might be invited into that vision of Jesus in an even in an economic sense. 
Um, So if you have a Bible on hand, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Uh, We'll be looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard, which is one of Jesus' longer parables. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, about 9 a.m., he saw others standing unemployed in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is just, I will give you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, around 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here unemployed all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them the wage, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no injustice. And by the way, friend there is not really friend. It's more, it's sarcastic, more like, hey, mister, hey, dude, I'm doing you no injustice. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and leave. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Um, This is also translated, or are you envious because I am generous? Um, And Pastor Kevin explained to us last week that an eye being good is the idiom for generosity. So what does this parable have to do with Jesus' economics? Um, As I mentioned, it's typically called the parable of the workers in the vineyard, um, but that doesn't really tell us that much about the parable, and nothing very specific at that. It's sort of like calling the Hobbit the story of the dwarves. Like, there are dwarves, and they're important to the story, but they're not the focus of the story. Um, And New Testament scholars, Ken Bailey, and especially Amy Jill Levine, whose work served as a huge foundation for my understanding of this text, have proposed some other um, more specific and perhaps more apt titles that I thought would be fun to share. Some of them are a little silly. We've got... The parable of the very strange landowner, the parable of the surprising salaries, the parable of the compassionate employer, we see this focus on the uh, homeowner, the landowner, the parable of the conscientious boss, and the parable of full employment where everyone gets a living wage. Um, Still, some commentators adamantly say that this story has zero economic implications. Uh, One of them says, the parable does not make an economic prescription. Another says, the parable is not a lesson in corporate economics or an example of how employers, even Christian ones, are to treat their employees. The story scarcely models good management labor practices, uh, which may be the point, but we'll see. Um, But... Really? It has no economic implications? I don't personally buy that. And today I'd like to suggest that 
This parable, like all parables, can be read in a number of ways, but one legitimate way to read it is about economics and about generosity and justice in a lived economic experience. One common interpretation of this parable, uh, and one common to people who don't think it's really about economics, is to summarize it as follows. This is the story of a series of day laborers who come in at drastically different points in the day, but the landowner pays them all the same amount. The implication is that this means that everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven will be saved, whether they've been living as a Christian since birth or accepted Jesus on their deathbed. And Christians who have been saved their whole life shouldn't grumble about uh, working the whole time. It's about grace, not about working yourself in. Um, This makes the parable an allegory of salvation, which is very nice, um, but it's probably not the one that initially was heard by first century Jewish listeners. Um, If we only hear salvation in the afterlife in this parable, I think we defang it of a lot of its implications for the way that we live um, economically and for our ethics and values in that sense. They would have listened to this story, the first century Jewish listeners, and thought not initially about salvation in the afterlife, but about economics in the present. Because they were concerned with making a living wage for their families and about economic justice, which, by the way, the Torah and the entire Hebrew Bible is very concerned with as well. In fact, the series that we're taking a hiatus from right now is on Deuteronomy, a book that is highly concerned with care for the poor and the marginalized. So if we were to step into the shoes of first century listeners, we might see this story as one about real workers in a real marketplace and a real landowner who hires and pays them in a highly unusual way. So we don't need to allegorize this parable only towards salvation and away from daily life or economics. Jesus may well be talking about eternal salvation here as well, uh, but he may also be talking about salvation in the present, because if you think about it, isn't putting food on the table for your family being saved too? Um, But I also want to emphasize that it's not either this reading or that one. Um, Rather, I think that Jesus makes more than one point in most of his teachings, um, and that's why there can be more than one sermon on this parable. Um, so we, when we look in, at the passage in closer detail, um, we'll, we can try to think about the fact that he's not only talking about eternal salvation here, he's talking about how we can become partners in the kingdom of heaven to sanctify the everyday here on earth, even the economies of the everyday. And it is literally the everyday here because we're talking about daily wage laborers. Um, and I find that parallelism really beautiful. So first, as we do... Let's talk about some cultural context. Who were these day laborers? Uh, The site would have been pretty common back then. Um, There's a section of the marketplace where day laborers stand and wait for work. Um, They need to provide for their families, um, and they're standing unemployed in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them. Um, This is still the case today, 20th century, 21st century. My great-grandfather worked as a day-wage longshoreman in the port of Houston, Um, And you can still see lots of day laborers lined up um, in different places. Um, For example, at Home Depot, although some of it is more hidden now that we have apps that connect people to different day jobs. Uh, Second, a denarius was pretty well accepted as the standard daily wage of the time. According to my HarperCollins Study Bible, a denarius is about enough to feed a large peasant family for one day. So it was accepted as enough, but it's not exorbitant. Um, It was a living wage. And finally, when we talk about a vineyard, we're not talking about these vineyards. 
Um, the vines that the day laborers would have worked on in this field would not have been trellised. They would have been very close to the ground, a little bit more like this, and workers would have had to bend down to harvest from them. It would have been really hard labor, especially to do in the heat of the day and for nearly 12 hours uh, for the ones who started close to 6 a.m. So now that we have the cultural context, uh, which really is closer to what we have today than we might have originally assumed, um, we can read the story and not just assume that everything we read was completely normal for their time. Um, I think it's good to expect that things are different in ancient times, so that we don't just map our assumptions onto the stories um, like this comic does. Um, but sometimes we go a little bit too far in assuming that cultures of ancient times were so different that anything then that seems weird to us would have been normal to them. Um, that robs us of the ability to be surprised by some seriously weird moments and incontinuities in the text, uh, of which there are in this one. Uh, sometimes what seems strange really is strange. So we're going to go back and reread the parable for its surprising moments, its wrinkles, the things that would have made the original listeners tilt their heads a little bit and say, hey, that's kind of weird. And we'll see where those take us. So, for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, everything seems pretty straightforward. A householder going out to hire laborers for his vineyard seems legit. They agree on a denarius. Yep, that checks out. And he sends them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, 9 a.m., he saw others standing unemployed in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is just, I will give you. So they went out. Okay, he goes back at 9 a.m. That's still pretty early. Seems pretty normal. Um, but we want to note here that the workers who are still waiting are standing and not standing idle, as some uh, translations have it. You might see that in the NRSV and other translations. Um, that might cause us to read some kind of laziness into the text, but the Greek word just means without work. They're standing without work. And they're standing, even in the heat of the sun, um, even all day, they're not kicking back in the shade with their buddies. They're ready to go. They want to work. They want to be the first person who jumps on the next opportunity. Um, and they may have been there since 6 a.m. as well and simply not chosen for a day job. Um, maybe it was like that dreaded gym class exercise where two people choose the teams and they're always like the most athletic um, and you really, really didn't want to be the last one picked for a team, which meant that you weren't picked at all. Um, in this case, though, the stakes are higher um, because not getting picked meant that these day laborers did not get to bring home a daily wage for their family. No money for food. It's also possible that these workers had ailing parents or other things to attend to first and just couldn't get there by 6 a.m. in the morning. Either way, uh, we have this next question. Um, what is just? The homeowner says, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is just, I will give you. What does that mean? No payment or payment schedule is stated. Um, so what we can conclude from this is probably that this guy is pretty well trusted in the community. Um, and it's not unheard of in their honor, shame culture of the time, as I've read. But it's something to note, that he has high standing. And what is just? We don't know yet, so we have to keep reading. 
Here's where things get a little funky. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here unemployed all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Sometimes I've learned that I fill in gaps that are in the text, and I don't even know that I filled them in. Um, And for the longest time, I read the story and assumed that the landowner just continued to need more workers for his vineyard. But that actually doesn't seem quite right, because we're given every indication that this is a man of means and with high standing in the community. Um, And landowners at the time usually knew how much labor they would need for any given day. This guy makes five round trips from his vineyard to the marketplace. So is this guy incompetent? Or more likely, does he have some other reason why he's going back to check on the laborers um, in the marketplace five times in a single day, and even in the heat of the day? We'll continue. And when the evening came, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and pay them the wage beginning with the last up to the first. A couple of things are strange here. All of a sudden, a steward enters stage right. If this householder, who is now called a lord, has a steward, then why didn't he send the steward for at least some of those trips, especially in the middle of the day? And then the householder specifically instructs the steward to pay his workers from last to first. And we'll come back to that. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, each of them received a denarius. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Whoa, this dude is generous. Can you imagine seeing him start at the beginning of the line? Uh, If you were one of the workers who started at 5 p.m., expecting to receive maybe one-twelfth of a denarius and then getting an entire one and imagining, envisioning yourself being able to bring it home to your family and buy food, this is really surprising. And then again... Whoa, the 6 a.m. workers think they're going to get way more, but they also receive a denarius. So here we find what the householder defines as just. Everyone gets the same wage, from the ones who worked nearly 12 hours through the heat of the day to the ones who only worked one hour. Those who were hired first got exactly what they contracted for, one denarius. Let's read their reaction. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Mister, I am doing you no injustice. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and leave. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Of course they grumbled. And a huge part of me is completely with them. When the householder asks at the end, uh, are you envious because I am generous in many translations, I'm like, yes, I am envious because you're generous. And I think that maybe everyone with siblings understands what this feels like. Um, But there's sort of a magic into how, in how universally infuriating this story is, even up to the present day, that we recognize and kind of feel their um, begrudging reaction to this generosity, and how much more so if what was at stake was a full day of bending over and harvesting from vines on the ground. A few months ago, I was chatting 
with two of my friends, my Jewish friends from Jewish Christian Bible study, and we were talking about what story we would share if someone asked us to share any story or teaching from our religious tradition. Of course, with the implication that it would represent or say something um, that was important to your faith. And I actually chose this one because I think there's something um, representatively difficult about how much I resist it. I think my concept of fairness, and I think their concept of fairness, looked a little bit like this. Either the ones who worked last would receive a fraction of a denarius, a fraction of the daily wage, or the ones who worked last should receive a denarius to begin with, and then everyone else should receive way more than a denarius for working many times the hours, up the pay scale. Originally, the workers were like, okay, they got paid first, so it has to be the second option. We'll receive way more. But in the end, the workers make it pretty clear that their gripe isn't that they didn't receive proportionally more than what they contracted for. It's that the ones who worked an hour didn't receive less than a denarius. You have made them equal to us, is what they say. And the householder is like, yeah, I did. If you have a problem with it, take your money and leave. I'm generous, and you're upset about it. The earlier laborers are interested in their own payment, not in whether the other workers and their families will have enough food. For the earliest hired, the issue was what they considered fair, and for the owner, the issue was what he considered just or right. There's an illustration that I've seen several times about the difference between equality and equity. Some of you may have seen it before. And the explanation basically goes, if you give all three of these people an equal-sized box, as it is on the left, they're not all going to be able to see this baseball game. But if you give each person what they need to see the game, that's equity, and that's what we should strive for. I think that in this parable, we could replace equality and equity with fairness and justice. The left side would be what the earliest workers initially want, where everyone receives the same rate of payment, some fraction of a denarius up to a full denarius based on the number of hours they worked. But justice looks like when everyone can see over the fence, even if they weren't able to start as early. Everyone being able to go home, to go home and know that they will be able to provide for their families. It may not be fair by our standards, but it was just for everyone to receive a livable wage in this parable. So in the kingdom of God, the point is not that those who have will get more. The point is that those who have not will get enough. And that's a deeply economic lesson for us. As it turns out, God is pretty much always more concerned with justice than with fairness. Another question we might have is, why did the owner hire these later workers at all? Why didn't he just walk down to the marketplace and hand them each a denarius and say, hey, go buy some food for your families. This parable may also have something to teach us about human dignity and the dignity that lies in work and economic systems. In this situation, the workers weren't standing and asking for money. They were asking for a job, and the householder gave them what they asked for, what they needed. Unfortunately, when we ignore other people's need for daily bread, we are not in line with how God envisions us loving our neighbors and pursuing justice. There's a reason it's not give me today my daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. It's give us today our daily bread. This parable comforts those who lack by reassuring them that the Father will come to us and meet our needs, but it's also a prompt for people with resources, 
Make sure everyone has what they need. A couple of years ago, I read this book by Brian Stevenson. It's called Just Mercy. Um, It's a really moving and infuriating and eye-opening book about the cruelty of the justice system, um, especially when it comes to the death penalty. But for the entire time that I was reading it, I thought the title meant just, as in only mercy or mere mercy. Um, And it was only when I reached the end. And this is pretty embarrassing because I study English and I'm supposed to have an ear for wordplay and things like that that I realized that the title could also be read as Just Mercy, in which justness, justice, are a quality of mercy. And I think at the end of the day, that is what justice in the kingdom of heaven is like. Even when we feel it's not fair, God's mercy and compassion are just. And this is what the householder says at the end. Hey, I went myself to demonstrate solidarity with these men. Why are you mad? I'm not only just, I am also compassionate and full of mercy because mercy and compassion are qualities of justice. But sometimes, as we see, we act to prevent God's work of abundance and justice. Here's a question that we put on hold. Why did the householder deliberately choose to pay from last to first? He could have avoided all this grumbling if he had just paid them first hired to last hired. The first hired would have gotten exactly what they expected, and they would have left, and the rest would have been increasingly overjoyed by his generosity. But he doesn't do that. He deliberately chooses to go from last to first. And I think there are three possible takeaways here. First, I think he pays last to first in order to educate everyone because the father of the household in the kingdom of heaven is a great pedagogue and seeks for everyone to understand what he's up to. Second, I think he does it to show his identity and his reputation as both a generous and just employer. Who wouldn't want to work for this guy now? Even if the disgruntled workers run off and tell everyone about why they're so mad, what are they going to say? Oh man, you should have seen it. It was so unfair. He gave these other guys who could only work for an hour a living wage that would feed their entire families today. And then he got to me, and he gave me exactly what we contracted for. Oh. Which I don't think would garner them very much sympathy. Everyone who heard them would have been like, yeah, that's terrible, really awful. Um, Where'd you say you waited for this guy? And then they would go wait for him the next day because they knew that he was such an amazing Uh, and just and generous employer. The parable is so clever in part because it uses their anger as its own indictment. Uh, But last and most importantly, I think he paid in this direction of last to first so that he would give the workers, the first workers, the blessing and the opportunity to share in his own generosity. The householder is not just bringing everyone along in the sense that he's compassionately giving them giving dignified work to the unemployed who are eager but down on their luck or missed the first call. He's bringing all those who were employed earlier in the day and bringing us along too, as listeners of the parable, into his generosity. He wraps us in his generosity and allows us to experience the generosity of spirit, even in how we hear and process the parable and how we view our fellow workers. We get to meet our knee-jerk reaction of, hey, that's not fair, and we get to share in the generosity when we deal with that. And that is a blessing. But when we refuse the blessing of this generous justice, God will call us out, as a householder does. And why? Because under a generous householder, in the generous kingdom of God, we are to do the work, 
in the labor force, in the kingdom of heaven, not for more payment, for, but for everyone's benefit. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says. We're also reminded in this parable that even if we're the 6 a.m. worker today, who had the blessing of knowing for all 11 hours that we would be bringing home provision for our family, this is a day laborer situation. Tomorrow, you might be the one who's still standing waiting for work at 5 p.m., And then you might be praying for the rescue of dignified work and rejoicing in the householder's generosity. Some people are experiencing the benefits of a period of great economic prosperity in the Silicon Valley. Others distinctly are not. But no matter where you are or where someone is, there could be a recession or your company could dissolve or you might have a major health expense that turns your life upside down. Economic security may be a lot more tenuous and even more arbitrary than we would like to think. I know that I've experienced the volatility of a changing financial situation, especially after the recession, and especially in working on my own college finances. One year I may receive financial aid, another year I may not. And whether we want it to happen or not, our lives may open this parable up to new readings merely because we've shifted roles in the story. So we should celebrate, and we are invited to celebrate when God comes and meets us or anyone else where we are and says, hey, there's work for you. I care about your dignity and the dignity of your work, and I will provide not only what is fair, but what is just for a person who is made in the image of God. So I hope that we don't miss the edginess of this parable. God is generous to the point of offense. And it does have something to do with economics. Jesus definitely did not read Adam Smith or Karl Marx, and he didn't take intro to microeconomics, but he's concerned with economics because he's concerned with the poor, and he's concerned with people. So how do we advocate for our neighbor to help ensure that everyone gets chosen? Here, I think of my mom. She literally helps people find meaningful work for a living, and she's done it for almost 30 years. I know that whenever she sees a job that she thinks someone might be able to apply for, she sends it to them. Like She sends my friends at college who she's never met jobs. Um, She connects people to resources and helps them find dignified and meaningful work. That's participating in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, there are still day laborers who stand outside Home Depot, but gig economy workers and freelancers for platforms like Lyft or Uber or TaskRabbit are perhaps becoming the new day laborers of our time. So maybe I can think about workers' rights in a different way. Or maybe I can tip my Uber driver because they've been telling me about how much harder it is to make a living each day when that's their only income and they don't have health insurance through their company. We naturally rejoice when we have opportunities to work and provide for ourselves and our families. But when we have a benefit, whether that's financial stability or connections, or as we've seen recently, the benefits of citizenship, do we think about other people who may not have been so lucky, and we try to bring them along too. Maybe these workers can even partner with the householder's compassion and next time say something about the people who are left. A.J. Levine puts it this way. Jesus is concerned about prioritizing, expecting the kingdom of heaven to break in. Indeed, seeing it already as present in his actions, he demands a reaction. Choose life. Choose to live the way God wants us to live. Given this urgency, new forms of living are required. 
We need to determine when practicality should give way to generosity. Through this parable, Jesus says, hey, come here. Let me show you what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let me show you how the Father loves people. He focuses on the needs of his workers, not his own needs, and he fills his workers' needs even at his own expense. The story presents us with the opportunity to live into a framework, uh, a vision of what should be, the story of whatever is just, rather than what is, whether what is is in first century Galilee or 21st century Silicon Valley. And as we find the little wrinkles in the story that surprise us, we also find the wrinkles in our heart that say, I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. But it ends without an ending. The parable ends on a question, and that's the last wrinkle of our story. We have no idea how the workers responded. Do we think that they went away still disgruntled at the landowner's generosity? Or do we think that they walked away side by side with the 5 p.m. workers and celebrated alongside them? The question, as Jesus likes to have it, turns to us, the reader, the listener. Will we continue to bump into our own market-oriented minds and the way that we are so averse to generosity? Or will we accept the Father's invitation into his economy of plenty, his economy of abundance? When Jesus ends the parable here, he says, it's up to us. So whether you were hired at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 or 5, or whether you're the landowner or the steward or simply a member of the community who's watching this all unfold in the marketplace, Jesus asks us the question, which story do you want to live into? It is God's will that everyone experiences economic justice. Is it our will too? The worship team is going to come back up, uh, and we invite you to take communion as well to remember what Jesus did when God decided, out of compassion, to come to us where we are. I'll pray. Father God, thank you so much for bringing heaven's reality here, now, close, through your son Jesus. Thank you that the rules of the kingdom of heaven are not like our rules. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you that when we pray your kingdom come, you, that we are invited to partner with you in that process. Forgive us when we are infuriated and offended by your mercy. May we rejoice in your great provision and generosity and become more like you every day. Amen.